This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome into the Prospect Podcast. I am Chris Trapasso, flying solo today. Uh, my regular guest, Matthew Collar, certainly has a lot on his plate on the free agency front with the Minnesota Vikings. He'll be back, though. Don't worry. And we will get to the final episode of the quarterback conversation series with Trevor Lawrence. I was going to record that uh, Monday night when I'm recording this now for today's episode, but I figured let's let the Jaguars do some things in free agency first. So we get a little bit of an idea as to how they want to build this team, Urban Meyer and Trent Baalke, their GM, and just maybe it'll give us, and it should give us some inkling as to their plans with the draft. Like, are they going to go offensive line with one of their uh, you know, early picks, the second pick in round one or the first pick in round two? Uh, are they going to go more weapons for Trevor Lawrence? Are they going to try to load up on defense in the secondary? Because that certainly was a problem last year. Uh, so that will be ne the next episode. Thursday's episode will be on the quarterback conversation series featuring Trevor Lawrence, and we're going to do it the same way that we did with Zach Wilson. Uh, we're going to talk about how he could potentially have things go wrong because we just know that every, that I could dedicate a podcast and just throw superlatives and uh, all these positive uh, praise on Trevor Lawrence for how good of a prospect he is. That would kind of be a waste of time. You've heard that. You can see it anywhere on TV. You can listen to it in a million different places. Uh, I'm not sure if Matt's going to be with me because things could really heat up on the Donnell Hunter front and, the Vikings could make a bunch of moves over the next couple of days. He might be too tied up, but I will record that if Matt can't be with me. So if you're waiting for that, that will be coming on Thursday. Today, I want to talk about human bias. You're thinking, what the hell? This is a draft podcast. But bias has become a mini obsession for me in the scouting process. It is the main reason why I created my grading system three years ago. and. Uh, it's there with every single human being and every single human brain. And I am not get anything I say from here on out is not that I think that I have eliminated bias for myself. I don't think that's possible for a human to erase every iota of bias. Um, but I am aware of so much of it that I think it helps me. I know that it helps me be more genuine in my scouting process. And I think it makes me give better evaluations of these players because there's so many out there. Uh, and, and I'm going to just talk about how I'm aware of them and how I incorporate um, trying to stay away and limit the different types of bias in my scouting process for my grading system and my write-ups, my rankings, everything that you see in here for me, I really am making a concerted effort to not have any bias seep in. And from this, and Obviously, like I said, a few years ago when I created this grading system to sweep away some of the bias that I knew would just inherently be there, 
and had been in my earlier evaluations, 2014, 2015, 16, uh, that I just noticed were creeping in. Thinking about doing this podcast forever and trying to figure out when I could fit it in, this is a perfect time. Uh, I, I've had this thought that, and when I get to all of these bias, the different types of biases, I think you'll have a similar thought that I think even as a draft analyst that goes into it, that with my job being like a weatherman, I know that I'm going to get things wrong and it's not the best feeling. Like I, I don't really like the fact that I know that I'm scouting 250 or 300 prospects and I'm going to get a fair amount of them wrong. I mean, it's not black or white. Like you could have, I could have a player ranked 101 overall, but he really plays like he should have been the 80th player overall. I don't know if that's a miss and vice versa. If I have a guy 80th overall um, and, you know, he's picked in the third round, like late third, early fourth, he goes 96th overall. Was I really right on him like that much more than the NFL or the team that picked him? I don't know. But you're going to get some wrong. You're going to have first rounders that ultimately bust. You're going to have guys that are third round that go in the third round that you loved in round one that ultimately become good players. But I think that bias is the one thing that leads to human beings, whether it be something like the NFL draft, doing any type of analysis or evaluation of the stock market of anything similar to those two things, really the, those two industries, the NFL draft, um, any type of sport, anything with money involved. I think bias is the reason why human beings are so bad at predicting the future when it comes to, uh, a topic that they have a lot of uh, data on, they can watch things, they can track things. There's models that you can create. You're an expert in that area because you've been doing it for a long time. You know what to look for, um, when you're doing this type of analysis. But I think so many different types of biases, again, seep in and that, and all of those things, bias in general, and all the different types are what stop humans from being good at being evaluators. All right, I'm going to just go into a few of these and it's like these, some of these you've probably heard of and you're like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard of that and I get it. But I, I just think that it is such uh, an important thing to get out there so people are aware of it uh, and just kind of peeling back the curtain again, like I did one of the first episodes with my grading system. It's kind of what I'm doing here. Pretty easy one, a pretty common one, recency bias. Uh, that's been around for a long time, specifically for the draft industry, like that, knowing that there's a tie between just general recency bias. And if a quarterback has a great bowl game, then he shoots up the boards. If he has a bad bowl game, he moves down the boards. He can have a great season leading up to that. And then if he has a bad bowl game, then he's just not going to be viewed as highly, which that is, that's ridiculous. I always think back to in 2018, Lamar Jackson, it's so funny, started that season as like, that was my first draft class at CBS. So like August, 2017, he was not part of that super hyped quarterback draft class. Like in August, September, it was Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold. Um, 
really those two were like the guys. There was a little bit for Baker Mayfield at that point. Um, and then there was Josh Allen as well, like this big, strong armed athletic guy. Can he get a little more accurate? And then like by September, late September, early October, Lamar Jackson was like, I remember writing uh, an article, I believe after Louisville played Purdue and he looked fantastic as a passer and a runner in that game. I believe the headline was like Lamar Jackson uh, has entered the scene or has uh, stepped onto the stage of being a legitimate early round quarterback prospect and goes through a season. Wasn't perfect all year, but was pretty dynamic as a runner, good pocket mover, uh, pretty accurate, was running a classic pro style system uh, from a former NFL coach, Bobby Petrino, even though he got the label as like he, he has to run this very elementary system. That was complete crap. And then in the bowl game against Mississippi State, he throws a bunch of interceptions, just looks out of sorts. I think that Louisville team was good, but mostly was carried by Lamar Jackson. And all the hype just dissipated. I think if that bowl game, if Louisville scheduled Mississippi State out of conference and they played that game in late August and he has a terrible game to start, and then the schedule was reversed. And from then on out, he played like he had played from like week one to week, whatever, 10 or 11. Lamar Jackson would have not gone number 32 overall. There's no way. So I think recency bias certainly factors in. And yeah, you can say that, well, in a bowl game, that quarterback, that receiver, that linebacker, doesn't matter the prospect's position, is probably playing the best competition that he has faced all season. And I think that is fair. You don't necessarily want to see a prospect that just tears it up against clearly lesser competition. You want to see not for a clutch gene or anything like that, but you want to see those players produce against the best competition. But when it comes to recency bias, if, if a quarterback, if any position is playing really well and then has a bad bowl game, yeah, you move him down because that was one of the games on his schedule that he didn't particularly play well. He showed his weaknesses, uh, wasn't able to really uh, deploy a lot of his strengths in that game. But I think there is way too much recency bias, bowl games, final game of the regular season, things like that. That is a huge one. It's kind of a low-hanging fruit. But I think that is very important, and we see players ultimately picked earlier and later than they should have because of recency bias. Another one, uh, I guess the next one, confirmation bias. This one is, the example would be, you watch Henry Ruggs on film, and you know that he is insanely fast. He is running away from everyone in the SEC, like even on a slant that he's taking 75 yards to the house. He has Devonte Smith running next to him and he is like leaving Devonte Smith in the dust. And then at the combine, he runs in the high four twos and it's almost gets double counted. And there have been some draft analysts that have talked about this, uh, but it confirms that, you know, that he, yep, he's really fast on film and he's really fast at the combine. I do think there's a little leeway here because there are some times where a player looks fast, 
and then he runs slow. And that when you're not confirming anything, you're like, wow, well, wait a minute. Why does he look fast on film? But why did he run four six um, at the linebacker spot or at the corner spot? Uh, but confirmation bias, I think, happens a lot. And that's all of these biases work both ways. Like if there is a if someone like I remember last year, AJ Epinesa, like clearly was not a super explosive player. He was all about handwork and how powerful he was and that he would be a good athlete at defensive tackle, but he was not someone that was going to threaten with speed and bend around the edge. And then at the combine, he tests like uh, average at best athlete at the edge spot and a pretty good athlete at D tackle. And he's kind of has some positional flexibility, 6'4", 275 with long arms. And AJ Epinesa ends up going in the middle of the second round or near the back of the second round to the Buffalo Bills. Uh, I think there was probably a little bit of confirmation bias that creeped in that was like, oh, he doesn't seem really fast. And then, oh, he's really not fast. So, yep, we need to drop him down after the combine. Anyone watching film for AJ Epinesa before last year's combine would have known that this guy's not going to test very well and I'm not going to crush him when he doesn't test well. Um, the next one, anchoring bias. This one it seems like it wouldn't seep in, but I think it does. Uh, this would be when the first, it's almost like first impression bias. So just to, to have it be a little bit more easy to understand uh, that you watch the first game of a player and you might flip on an Alabama game against uh, Louisiana Tech and you see, who knows, you see Mac Jones just look like the best quarterback prospect ever. Or you see Trent Richardson look like the next coming of Adrian Peterson. And then that game, because it's first impressions are so strong on the human brain, you don't allow the other games to weigh evenly in your own head. And it's just that first game. You're thinking about that first game. You're thinking about that first game. So there could be recency bias where maybe the last game you watch, that's what you remember uh, more than anything else. And you end up weighing that a little bit more in your uh final grade and your evaluation of that player. But I do think that anchoring bias or first impression bias is very important as well, uh, which I guess I need to go back. Let me, before I kind of get too far ahead of myself for recency bias, uh, I don't watch bowl games like last. Uh, I certainly watch them during the season as kind of a fan and someone that is tracking, uh, you know, what's happening at that point, like doing these articles throughout the season for CBS. But bowl games outside of, okay, that was a game against better competition. I am keenly aware of this one. I do not, you know, boost up a stock after a big bowl game or drastically drop a stock if a player doesn't play well in the Sugar Bowl or whatever it is. Confirmation bias, uh, this one is pretty easy for me as well. Um, knowing that this it's a thing, it, the double counting, like last year, I already had Henry Ruggs speed like super high. Uh, I wasn't going to move it too much, if at all, um, after the combine. Um, same thing with AJ Epinesa. And I wrote an article um, about Jalen Rager and AJ Epinesa. You can find it on CBS Sports. Just type in my name and type in type in Chris Trapasso, AJ Epinesa, Jalen Rager, and you will see an article like why those combine performances that were a little disappointing shouldn't really impact them too much. 
where they go or they ultimately how they ultimately will play at the NFL level because we knew going in, uh, you know, both players like how they were going to test. I mean, I guess Jalen Rager was a little bit surprising and he was maybe uh, a little bit dinged up during his workout. But AJ Epinesa, the example I gave, that was an obvious one. So we didn't have a combine this year, which in a way I kind of liked for this reason because we had no opportunity to do double counting. Um, and to not have any confirmation bias, but obviously the combine would have been nice to get all those numbers in, to look at them historically, how they compare to other players. Um, and then availability bias, um, or I guess anchoring bias was the one that I went to next. Uh, I'm just kind of reading off my notes here. Um, first impression. I really, this is tough. Like this one is not something that I think you can just will your way to not have. Uh, because your first impression is a first impression. It's true when you, uh, when you're with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you meet their parents and like that first impression is, is going to stick with those parents for forever, for a very long time. So I think this one, I'm aware of it. Uh, and so when I'm getting into game two and game three and game four and game five, I'm like, okay, these games all weigh the exact same. The first impression, the first game I just happened to click on, I'm not going to let that uh, carry more weight because that game is just another game. Um, I skipped one uh, availability bias, which is kind of similar uh, to first impression bias. And this one is our brain will quickly remember one big play from a prospect. Like it's available in our head. It's left an indelible impact on us. And because of that, whether that play was good or bad, it sways our evaluation of the prospect. And we will, regardless of other of any, everything else we see, other games, tons of other film, um, we will lean in the direction of maybe one or two or maybe even three really good or really bad plays. I think the biggest example of this, 2014 pre-draft process. So 20, I believe the game actually was early 2014, but the 2013 season into 2014, Jadavian Clowney hit uh, on the Michigan running back, I believe Outback Bowl or Gate Bowl uh, down there in Florida. Completely, yes, it was a big hit. Jadavian Clowney was like 6'5", 265. This was a small scat back. Was his name Devontae Smith? I remember that running back from Michigan. Anyway, um, I can see his face. I can see that he was a squatty guy, but completely unblocked. Running back just gets the ball and Clowney blows him up. And that play, the hit, was on every single highlight, every sports center, NFL network. Uh, and that was like, oh man, look at how hard of a hitter Jadavian Clowney is. When that was literally not even, I mean, in terms of scouting, it wasn't even that impressive of a play because for an edge rusher, even someone that's setting the edge, you know, playing the run, he didn't have to beat a block. He was completely unblocked. It was a blown assignment. Uh, and yeah, a, a defensive end should blow up a 5'9", 185, 190-pound running back if he's unblocked. And the second that that running back gets the ball, the defensive end's already in the backfield. Like, I think a lot of those plays uh, with the availability bias can have a pretty big impact. And this one's tough for me too, because you do remember 
those highlight real plays. And I think after a while, like what I do with this is after a while, like if we're seeing like last year, Brian Edward from South Carolina had like seven or eight, like just ridiculous high point grabs in contested catch situations in the sec down the sideline, down the seam in the end zone. After a few of those, I was like, man, this guy is really good. And then I remember after the first couple that I was like, okay, those are only like two plays out of his 600 plays that he's involved in, whatever it was last year at South Carolina. Like, let's not get crazy. But then after a while, like, I don't know what, where the number is where you should start to say, Hey man, this guy's a playmaker. Um, but if there's only a few plays good or bad, and I guess I'm kind of using good examples, but you can't let that sway your evaluation. I mean, Brian Edwards ultimately was a, a, a late first round evaluation for me, but I think he had enough of those high caliber plays yards after the catch. Um, not just, you know, the circus grab against Tennessee near the end zone, but he was doing that stuff on a regular basis. That was part of who he was as a player. And it was why he was ultimately, you know, graded really high for me. So I think though availability bias, our brain plucks what's really readily available and remembers that, Hey, well that one play should really sway the evaluation. I really try to make a concerted effort with that one as well. Um, the halo effect is another really interesting one. Um, and it's been around for a long time too, at least the uh, idea of it or the awareness of it. But for example, what the halo effect is when it comes to the NFL draft, like we recall a, let's say an Ohio state cornerback that we really liked who flourished in the NFL. And we know that throughout history, recent history, let's say a lot of Ohio state corners have just been really good. So we're like, all right, we're going to scout this Ohio state. We're going to scout Sean Wade. Like he's going to be good. He's going to be good. And it's already, you go in almost ready to give him a higher grade. Like he starts not at zero. He starts like higher. Um, and the same thing is true on the other side that we've never seen, say a good wide receiver from, I don't know, I guess maybe Purdue until this year, or it's been a very long time. And so you kind of go in, I mean, if you were living under a rock in 2018, you go in and you go, who is this little Rondale Moore freshman? Like from Purdue, really Purdue. Um, or for example, this year, Greg Newsom, which I guess Rondale Moore is this year too, but Greg Newsom, this long, super athletic, fast cornerback from Northwestern. We're not used to seeing really good players in the secondary that are first or second round caliber players from Northwestern at the cornerback spot. And I mean, yes, they've, they've put a lot of good players into the league. They're very fundamentally sound. I have to always toot the horn for Pat Fitzgerald because I think he's the best football coach in college football. Um, but we normally don't see these freak athletes from Northwestern. And I think Greg Newsom is like super long, ran in the four threes at his pro day. So maybe you would have been like a low four, four guy at the combine. Uh, so you, we have to go in and you really, I think Matt on a really early podcast said like, we need to dedicate, uh, an episode to all the bad scouting stuff that happens, like the narratives and like scouting the helmets. It's funny to bring up like, oh yeah, you know, you can't scout the helmet. And I think most um, 
NFL draft analysts are really good not doing that, but I think it's, I also believe that it's very easy to fall into that, that when you start watching film of a, um, let's see, a Houston offensive tackle, when you're watching Josh Jones last year, you're like Houston offensive tackle. Like who, what is this? Who is this? You have to, and and I really try to not just not scout the uh, helmet, but also just have no preconceived. I mean, I guess you could kind of bake it in that they went to the same school. If it's the same coaching staff, you can maybe think, okay, like this is a similar type of athlete in this same role. But I always look back to uh, back-to-back years. Eli, was it back-to-back? Eli Apple was either 2015 or 2016 corner did not pan out with the New York giants. I did not think he was a great prospect. And then Marshawn Lattimore was fantastic coming out of Ohio state the next year. Uh, and then there was some, you know, concern like was Denzel Ward going to be the next Marshawn Lattimore or was he going to be the next Eli Apple? And even, uh, you know, there've been some corners from Alabama, uh, who haven't necessarily turned out D Milner. Remember that name 2013 draft, I believe uh, did not make it in the NFL. And he, he was a gigantic bust, but I think there is, it's very easy to say Alabama corner. He's going to be good. Alabama defensive tackle. He's got to be good and go into an evaluation thinking, all right, this guy's starting at, he's starting at 7.5 and we're just going to bump him up and get him close to nine. Like in my Grading system, basically the lowest score you're going to get overall is like 7.75. And then the highest, I have like, I think six or seven players graded above nine. So there's, it's not a lot that separates each prospect. But uh, I think when you do believe that you're seeing uh, another player, another corner from Ohio State or, or another wide receiver from LSU, that right after Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry, there was like Traven Durrell and another, oh, who was the other guy? Someone in the comments, please leave a review and tell me who that other LSU wide receiver was. I'm completely blanking and I'm mad at myself. Right after Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry, that I, there was like a little bit of a push like, oh yeah, he these guys are legit prospects. They're going to be like stars like Beckham and Landry were right away in the NFL and they just weren't. So I think... That is something it's not super easy. I don't think you completely just do a clean slate when you're watching a player, but you have to be aware. And I am aware of, look, this is another player. And Sean Wade to me from Ohio state is nowhere near the conversation of Denzel Ward, who I absolutely loved. And, uh, Marshawn Lattimore, even Gary and Conley. He is not in that same realm whatsoever from Ohio state. He was a big recruit but he's just not the same type of prospect. He's not the same type of athlete, not the same type of awareness or ball skills. Uh, also, to kind of move off that one, and this one is a big one. I don't know how many more I'm going to bring up, but there is a gigantic echo chamber. I think really in every industry when it comes to really anything, but certainly when you're evaluating, you're giving your opinion on anything, but in the NFL draft industry, the, the echo chamber is brutal. I I think it's and anyone that technically I would be saying is in it. I'm I'm not faulting them. I'm not 
dissing them. I think it's very easy to fall into it, especially given how ubiquitous uh, social media is and that you're getting your opinions and you're writing out there through social media and everyone can see it. You're on a platform and you are uh, saying, Hey, here's what I think about this player. So you're making yourself vulnerable and you're saying, here's who I think the best wide receiver is. And here is my linebacker rankings. So it's easy for people to not agree with you and chime in and make you feel like you're an idiot and you're not going to be right on this. And here's why I'm right. And the bigger named uh, NFL draft analyst, bigger, smaller, it's easy to to group yourself with them and say, I'm going to be, I'm going to feel better about my evaluations if they pretty much align with you know, guys that have already scouted in the league or they're working at NFL network or they're working at uh, ESPN or have been doing it for a long time. And I think that's, again, you, if that is you, you're not being authentic. And like, how how are you providing anything different from Daniel Jeremiah or Mel Kuyper or Todd McShay or Lance Zerline? Like you're not, you're, maybe you move around. He has, could he pay at number 13 and you have him at number 15? It just doesn't, it's not authentic. And I think it's difficult. And I remember early on in my career that I was like, man, like it's tough. Like you see Daniel Jeremiah or you see a big name draft analyst and I'm fine with them doing this, being very confident in their evaluations. I think everyone should be, but you see a tweet that doesn't even say like, I think this guy might be the, it is, uh, I'm going to use a, a throwback. Uh, I'm trying to think of a player from way back in the, in the day, meaning like 10 years ago, not that anyone said this, but like, if someone were to have said like, I think, or Robert Griffin, the third is the best quarterback prospect in the 2012 draft. Actually a better example. I don't know if there was anyone doing it then in 2012 was like the first year that I like covered the draft for bleacher report wasn't really doing any evaluations then I was just straight up like seeing what people were saying uh people that that were the evaluators mostly on tv at that point and I guess on twitter as well and just like oh the Browns picked Trent Richardson at three great pick like he he's good great pick but imagine if like when in 2012 if someone came out there and said Russell Wilson is the best quarterback prospect in this class. But this is with Andrew Luck and how hyped he was and how super hyped Robert Griffin III, the Heisman winner was, that two things. Like one, you would have ev- like quickly been labeled as like, you're absolutely nuts because there was a lot about uh, that he was too short. And, but if this was coming from a bunch of big name people, it would have been a lot easier for you to say, yeah, yeah, I I think Russell Wilson's, you know, he might be the best quarterback in this class. The echo chamber to me is it's impossible to avoid. So I'm not like speaking from an ivory tower saying like, I'm not a part of this whatsoever. But when I got hired at, at CBS in August of 2017, I figured CBS, like this is one of the big, players in the sports uh, industry, like sports media industry. So I'm going to give strictly my own evaluations. I had been doing that in the past, but I wasn't going to back away. Like, Hey, now you're on the grand stage. How, like, what are you going to do? I was like, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. 
And that's even knowing then and certainly knowing more and being more aware of it now that like a lot of people, including myself for sure, their big board was like, oh, like what's everyone else saying? Like who the top the 35 to 40 players are. All right. My big board's going to be just a slightly different variation of that. Um, but I, I did, I mean, even if you look back, like I sold the draft guide in 2014, um, I had Khalil Mack, I had a Jadavian Clowney, I had Mike Evans, I had a Sammy Watkins, and that was a little controversial. Um, it was Sammy Watkins all the way. Like he was a consensus top receiver in that class. Um, I had Johnny Manziel as like my sixth quarterback. That was not popular. Um, but I certainly figured, Hey, I've been doing this. Um, uh, and I feel like I'm actually giving a reader uh, something that is unique, that is Chris Trapasso. It's not just a kind of conglomeration of what I'm like, everything I've seen on the internet and on TV. And once I'm at CBS, I'm definitely going to do the same thing because I think a lot of the quote unquote leaders or the, or the, the biggest draft people, I don't think they're doing a lot of, you know, Hey, who, who's, who's telling them necessarily. And they're, giving their own evaluations out there. Uh, so I do think that it's tough to avoid and I can't do this now because I have to write about the draft um, throughout the whole college football season and into the pre-draft process. I would love though one year, hopefully at some point in my career, I can do this to completely like shut out social media and not watch I guess I would have to like not watch college football during the season because they talk about draft stuff during it. But and just do draft evaluations like based like completely from a blank slate. Like go into a draft process and not be like, okay, Jamar Chase is probably the first or the second best wide receiver in this class. Let's see. I'll grade him now and see where he is. Okay. Like there is, and I do think, and Matt has said this on the podcast in the past, that the NFL overall does a good job like identifying like the 200 or so guys that can play in the league. So I think probably that is where a lot of the big name, super connected draft analysts get their initial info. Like, hey, like look out for this wide receiver from LSU. He's probably going to blow up this year and he looks like NFL caliber. But to just go in and say, and have no preconceived notion about any draft prospect and just say, hey, like here are my strictly my completely authentic evaluations. Here are my rankings based on those. I think it would be a really, really fun project. Um, I don't know if I, if that's possible, but it would be really fun to do. And it's, I don't know if this, I mean, maybe you wouldn't agree with this, but they're used like I used to have the thought like being on Twitter and like hearing or I guess you don't hear on Twitter, but reading other people's tweets and evaluations like someone could say, hey, you know what? Um, I don't know that Eric Kendricks guy from UCLA. He actually looks pretty athletic and he looks good in coverage. And you hey, look at this play that I thought that there was a lot of value in that because you were grabbing more information from other sets of eyes. And then you could go back and say, hey, let's see if I think the same thing. And that's what I would kind of try to do uh, using that kind of tool as, you know, using social media as a tool. But 
I think then some type of bias, whether it be part of the echo chamber or you're just confirming what you just read from someone else or you're trying, I think it would be kind of more joining the echo chamber and saying, hey, this guy thinks this. And then you're almost looking for what he pointed out and what he thinks or how he values a certain skill um, when maybe you watched the exact same set of games and you didn't initially come to that conclusion. I don't think there's a problem rewatching yourself, but I've really shied away from like not other draft analysts. There's a ton at, at Yahoo, Eric Edholm. I just want to throw out like as many names. I already like kind of mentioned the big ones. Uh, Mike Renner at PFF, Austin Gale at PFF that do an amazing job, but I, I don't think there's a lot, there's kind of a give and take. And I don't think that it's better for me to like read as much about other people's draft thoughts and then for my own draft thoughts, because I think that's kind of a dangerous game. And I would be making again, a concerted effort to not have any of their thoughts seep into mine, but they would subconsciously, I would be like, man, Hey, yeah. Uh, Mike Renner said this about that player and I'm just going to suddenly find that on film and then change my grade. And then it's a Mike Renner adjusted grade and scouting report for that player technically. So uh, social media, I've tried to stay off it as much as possible. I have been on the last like week or so uh, scrolling the timeline a little bit, but like at the beginning of Lent, I was like, I'm going to give up scrolling Twitter. And if you look at the beginning of Lent, I like was tweeting. And like when I had to send out my articles and promote stuff, I was doing that, but I was really trying to stay off. Um, And once we get through free agency, I'm going to really try to stay off Twitter. I don't want to, I just don't want to see it. It's not that I don't think that those analysts do a good job. I, I know that they do. And I've talked to a lot of those guys at the combine. They're, they're smart football minds, but and even reading like the PFF draft guide, there's so much in there that I think can help, but, and, and certainly having every single play graded and all these things tracked, I think is important. And I think for a fan, it is a, it's an amazing resource. But for me, it's like, I don't necessarily want to like sneak onto someone's page and go, oh man, like this is what they think about that player. Because I think subconsciously it would kind of creep into my own evaluation. So. I think, and I guess part of this, which I have written down in my notes and from that article earlier, or I guess in February, it's like imposter syndrome. And that's kind of part of the echo chamber. Like everyone thinks they're an imposter. So they're like, oh man, I I have to do what everyone else is doing or I'm going to get found out when everyone feels that way. uh, That's like the, the prime example is like someone at some point at the combine uh, even after the 40 yard dash like went electric or laser timed, whatever it is, uh, took out their stopwatch and pointed their stopwatch right, you know, lined up their eye with the end of the 40 yard dash. This is like a Charlie casually special. And then there, I bet there, the first time it happened, there was probably a wave of scouts who were like, Oh crap. Like this, whoever it was, we need to do this. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. And this is how it needs to be done. When in reality, we know that like doing a 40 hour dash time that way is pretty inexact. And when you were talking about the differences in hundredths of a second, changing a player's draft round and how you view that player, you shouldn't have something that is that inexact, especially when it is laser time. So I don't know. I think, um, 
to if I was completely not on social media, it would be fascinating for a, a whole pre-draft process that I would probably have players like way higher that weren't really on like the first or second or third round draft radar. Um, and I guess I already kind of have that a little bit every year, but I, I really think that those, and one last one, which I think is very important. Um, being an NFL draft analyst, uh, I think there is part of it that you do want to get sources. You want to be able to talk to executives. You want to be able to talk to scouts and then even on the player side, agents, things like that. Um, but I will say I don't reach out to them and ask them ever about what do you think of this player? Because whether that be, uh, I mean, that could, that's confirmation bias. That is echo chamber effect. That is imposter syndrome. That's trying to buddy up with an agent or a, um, you know, a scout that's for a team and you're going to just, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to like your, your client. And certainly with agents, um, that is a thing, but I think that a lot of the people that are super plugged in, uh, can fall into that. They have good relationships with people at the team level, at the agent level. And when there's emotion tied into it, I think, and there's relationships, real human relationships, it's going to seep into your evaluation of certain players, uh, boost them up higher, uh, drop someone down that played for a rival school or that an agent didn't get. And he, you know, kind of talks bad about, or a team doesn't really like, and you want to, you know, be on the same page and never disagree with a scout. So you're move your evaluations. Like, I think if, if you're a draft insider, if you're writing about draft news, I think, yeah, you, you need to cultivate as many of those sources as possible and ask them tons of questions all the time. But for someone like myself that is just doing draft evaluations, I think that is another dangerous game to fall into. And I think a lot of times when these really smart draft analysts that are super plugged in are getting some of these evaluations wrong, it's probably because of that because they have relationships with someone tied to that player. I mean, not every time, but I think, uh, that it, that a, a prospect say like Blaine Gabbert gets anointed coming out of Missouri, uh, in 2010 for the 2011 draft. And who knows if who agents are talking to and who teams are talking to that it's just like a given that Blaine Gabbert is going to be a top half of the first round pick and he's going to be a good quarterback. When in reality, which I wish I would have been scouting then because I've there's a few people I know um, that were scouting back then and, and have said like that was a very easy evaluation. Like he was going to be a horrible quarterback and he was going to he should have been picked in the third or the fourth round at best. And he goes top 15, top 10. Um, was he the number 10 overall pick, number 11 overall pick in that terrible quarterback class? Um, I totally forget the numbers. Him, Christian Ponder, Jake Locker, brutal. Uh, that they all have said, like Joe Marino um, of the of the draft network. I'm trying to think. There's a few others that I know have been doing it for a long time that were like, yeah, I didn't get why he got boosted up. And I, I don't know either. 
And, you know, all it takes is one GM to say, hey, I really like this Blaine Gabbert guy. He's talking to a draft analyst. Then you watch ESPN or you watch NFL Network or anything, or you read something on a different website and it's Blaine Gabbert. He's he's going to be good. He's going to be a first round pick. So I think doing draft evaluations and I think if there was anyone uh, employed by a team listening to this, they would tell me and really Matt's even said this being a beat reporter. You need to know the mental side of a player. You need to know what makes him tick. You need to know how much he loves football. Uh, And that's something that I've had not a ton of access to. At the Combine, you can talk to players. um, And I've talked to a few uh, like through agents in the past. But I think in general over the course of time, and certainly when you're scouting so many prospects, hundreds every single year, two, three, four hundred, over time, I think having those relationships or knowing so much about a player and maybe his maybe when you when you met him and you talked to him, he wasn't he didn't get a good night of sleep and he seemed like he was kind of an a-hole or he's very good at uh disguising that he didn't really care about the NFL. Um, and so then you think that he's just going to be this super hard worker when in reality, he just wants the money. I, I just think there's so much confusion and there's no way to really, really know a person, especially get to know that guy in three months before a draft or to talk to his coach. Like unless the guy is a complete uh, screw up, like his coach is not going to say anything bad about him his high school coaches and his parents aren't his friends probably aren't it. It's so much at time and energy. And I don't think the value is, is, is there in the long run. I think finding if he's a good football player, if he's an NFL caliber athlete, if he has the traits that are valuable um, at his specific position, that is more important over time. We're talking two, three, four draft classes, or maybe even just one 400 players to just not know anything about them and just watch them on the field, watch them at the combine, know what their athletic profile says about them relative to the history of that position. Like, is this guy a first round caliber athlete? Is he a sixth round caliber athlete? Uh, That to me, I think leads you down a better path to better evaluations than trying to like weigh this and put a number on this thing that's not quantifiable, like personality and like work ethic. I just don't think, and maybe I'm crazy with this, but I I truly believe that, that the relationships with the players and their agents and their high school coaches, they make for good stories and there's tons of good stories every year. Um, and yes, there are times where you can tell that maybe there were red flags for Johnny Manziel, I remember the 2012 draft class, like there was maybe some of those thoughts and maybe that is why he fell a little bit in round one, but there weren't like, oh, this guy is probably going to bust out of the league in like two years. Um, But even so, even if there were, and even if that's why he did fall and that there were a lot of draft analysts saying this guy is going to, you know, just completely take it for granted and not read the playbook. uh, That's like one guy. And, and like, Ja'Kai Polite from Florida a few years ago had like a weird combine where there were some like things that he, like some rumors that he was weird in the uh, interview process and wasn't like friendly to the coaches and he showed up overweight. Like 
okay, there was serious red flags for a player that looked like on film a first round pick, late first rounder, goes in the third round of the Jets and then is, I think he might still be in the league. Maybe he's not. Bounced around, has never really played, has not been productive whatsoever. Was it was a bad pick even in the third round. Uh, so, but I think in general, knowing there have been a lot of teams that have been bamboozled by someone that can fake it or think that a player uh, is not caring. Like this past season, I forgot which Bills beat writer wrote the article, but that uh, Stefan Diggs like admitted in his pre-draft process that his final season at Maryland, he made some business decisions and he was like not taking hits over the middle and running out of bounds. And he was like, I, I just wanted to get to the league. And that's part of why he fell. I think he got injured in his final season too, but it's part of the reason why he fell to the fifth round. And now he's an elite wide receiver. So I think for any, you know, yeah, there's a, a handful of like, Oh, we knew this was coming. Either this guy's a, a super hard worker or this guy is just going to completely throw away his chances immediately because of his work ethic. I think you could also point to, you know, play teams, so many teams that have been thrown off or evaluations that have been incorrect. When you go down this path of like trying to really get to know him so quickly through a source, through another source, through his friends, sort like, I just think, is he a good football player? Does he have the skills needed to be an NFL prospect or a good NFL player? And does he have those NFL caliber athletic traits and where is he on the 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 spectrum of NFL athleticism does he have all pro type of ability or is he more a 10-year player that's maybe never going to make a pro bowl so all right I guess that'll do it I'm getting close to an hour I could talk about this forever um, if anyone wants to talk to me about this more hit me up on Twitter at Chris Trapasso just DM me we can talk about this um, I hope to someday be able to do that project where I just have no idea who the draft prospects are and just watch a ton of film and then come up with my own big board and my own rankings. That would be a lot of fun. I think that would be the best way to kind of dodge the echo chamber that is almost impossible to not have affect you and the imposter syndrome, all that stuff. But I am aware of all these recency bias, confirmation bias, availability bias, uh, first impression bias, the halo effect, then what I've just been talking about the last like 20 minutes, echo chamber and imposter syndrome, which are kind of related. Uh, so I think with doing those, and I'm not, again, saying I'll end with this, not saying that, that I I've rid myself of all of those, but I'm definitely aware. So, you know, with me, you're getting truly someone that is aware of all those biases and that I'm trying to give you the most authentic and genuine evaluations from strictly Chris Trapasso. Maybe I'm not going to be as right as other people, or maybe I'll be more right, but you know that you are getting a Chris Trapasso evaluation. When you read one of my scouting reports, listen to me on this podcast, anything like that. All right, that'll do it for me today. Again, I'm Chris Trapasso. Thank you for listening to the Prospect Podcast.